ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. This is the Acts of the Apostles. For more information, go to carolinesprings.church. If I haven't met you, my name's Jono. I'm the lead pastor here at this church, and I get to uh, preach from this great chapter in the book of Acts, chapter 15. If you've been with us, you'll know that we've been making our way steadily through this book. Uh, it'll take us all the way up to Christmas. We're going to spend about, i probably end up being about 30 weeks in this great book of Acts. Um, if you've got a Bible in front of you, make sure you keep it open because we're just going to track through uh, this chapter a little bit at a time. If you don't own a Bible, take that one with you. That's our gift to you. Um, otherwise, it'll be on the screen, and along with the text, there'll be a number to text if you have any questions, all right? So sometime after the service, after we've all had some coffee and calmed down, we'll um, address your questions from the front if there are any. So feel free to do that. Um, it's all anonymous, so feel free to make fun of me if you like. Hey, we're going we're gonna to pray for God to uh, bless the preaching of his word, so why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We trust it. We believe that you have inspired every word for our good and for your glory. So now I pray that you would guide us through this chapter, that you'd reveal everything to us that you would have us know. Lord, please speak into our hearts. We want you to change us to be more like the Lord Jesus. So we pray these things in his name. Amen. I wonder, in a room this size, how many of us have experienced a near-death experience? Like a genuine... Yeah, show me some hands. Just a little survey here. Oh, we're in double figures. I mean, I mean like a genuine near-death experience. Not like the Wi-Fi went down for the afternoon, all right? So just um, like life and death situation. I feel like everyone in my family has experienced a near-death situation. My kids were both born, not breathing, had to be rushed to the NICU. So their first experience was a near-death one. Renee giving birth to them on both occasions, particularly the second one, had to be revived, like brought back from the dead, literally. It's a near-death experience, a little too near for our liking, and she was a paramedic, she was in situations like way more than she should have been, where there were knives involved, right, and threats. I have had a few experiences like that, probably the, the one where I was closest was about this time of year, uh, a little later, I'd just finished year 12, all right, so don't do this, guys. We, we packed up, me and my mates, and we went to Lake Eildon. And uh, we'd finished exams, and life was good, and the weather was warm, and we just camped there I, for an indeterminate amount of time. I can't even remember. I think we just kind of made it our new place of residence. And um, and my friend, I went to a, like a pretty posh school. I had lots of rich friends. One friend had two brand new Yamaha jet skis, um, and and it was good to be his friend. Uh, <laughs> And I had a kayak <laughs> that I borrowed off someone. And um, a little illustration of our socioeconomic heritage. And uh, 
But it was cool because he and my other friends would, would go around on the jet ski across Eildon. If you've ever been there, it's just a big expanse of water kind of punctuated by some dead trees. And, uh, and so they were having fun. And I like fishing. So I was in my kayak and I was fishing. And then we had this great idea that it was one thing to, to kneeboard and to ski behind a jet ski, but what would it be like to kayak behind a jet ski? <laughs> and so I had this dancer kayak. It was one that you could go through rapids and had the little, little skirt to kind of pin you in. And, um, and so we attached it to a tow rope. And normally, normally, if you're a responsible person, you have someone driving the thing and then someone sitting facing the jet skier, just making sure everything's okay. We didn't do that. Um, we, we just tied me in the kayak to the back of this. It was more of a jet boat than a jet ski. It was like a three-person thing. Um, and then, so my friend Stewie just jumped on, we tied me in, and then I was literally, like, anchored in through, with this skirt, and then he just throttled it and took off. And as soon as he did, the nose of the kayak went down, and I went down with it. And I was just literally underwater, unable to do anything, including yelling at my friend to stop the jet ski. And I got whacked a couple of times by submerged, like, branches of trees and... Um, I think I might have had a conversation with a merman or a mermaid. I can't... <laughs> Started to get a little bit hard to think after a while. And then, I don't know, God's grace, he uh, looked back and couldn't see me um, because I was underwater and stopped. And it was all, everything was okay. I was mildly brain damaged as a result, which explains... Some of what you might hear this morning, but that's my that's my near death experience. And um, and if we had time, it'd be fascinating to go around the room and see hear hear yours, right? Like it shouldn't surprise us, really. Even in comfortable, you know, twenty first century Western society, people still die. It turns out, and people still nearly die. And why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because what we're about to witness here in the book of Acts is probably the first near-death experience for the church. The church has had many, many near-death experiences over the last 2,000 years, as you might imagine. This is the first major near-death experience. It's an experience that threatens the very church itself and certainly its gospel message about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And as we've seen, and as Jimmy has told you, we believe this book, the meta theme for the book, is that it's about ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. And that is under threat in chapter 15. So I encourage you again, pick up a Bible. We're going to read a little bit and talk a little bit. And if you've got your questions, you can text them in as we go. All right, so let me read uh, just verse number one to begin with. This is the issue. Chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So we know from the last couple of weeks, 
Paul and Barnabas have been on their first missionary journey. They've gone sort of through up the Mediterranean via the island of Cyprus, where Barnabas is from, up into northern Turkey, into the area called Galatia at the time. Uh, sorry, north into Turkey, southern Turkey, into Galatia. And, uh, and, and they've spent some time in Iconium, and they're now in Antioch, and they've been teaching people about the good news of God's free offer of grace and salvation to all who believe, all on the basis of the merits of Jesus. They're ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to him. And people have been coming to faith. Like this first missionary journey is incredibly successful. We're going to hear from the walkers a little later on about their missionary journey to Rwanda. And missionary journeys can can kind of can go really well and sometimes they can go really badly and by that I mean sometimes we can see great fruit coming out of the work of missionaries and sometimes it's really barren and there's not a lot that comes from it here in this situation Paul and Barnabas they've had massive success in terms of gospel ministry people are responding to the good news and now all of a sudden death arrives in the form of of these people who have come down from Judea. They're people who are teaching people that unless they're circumcised, they can't be saved. So imagine the situation, you've got this church of believers just like us, they're all just like we are, delighting in the goodness of God, in the grace of God. They're aware, as we are, that we don't deserve God's favour. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve God's salvation. Which leads us to having great joy in God's goodness, despite what we deserve. And then all of a sudden, these guys turn up and say, Hey, how's it going, guys? Great to be here. Lovely church. I like the glass. Good coffee. And then over coffee, after the service, they say, So... You guys are Gentiles, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, we're Jews. Um, Christians, though, right? Yeah, Christians, yeah. Not worshipping those pagan gods anymore. No, 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 we, we love Jesus. We do. We've been saved by grace. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About that. Um, it turns out G- Jesus is good. Jesus saves you, but unless you're circumcised, you guys probably aren't Christians. It's a great threat to the gospel in the first century. And so Paul and Barnabas respond and respond strongly. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So you've got this situation, everything's under threat, people aren't really sure which way to go, right? This isn't as cut and dried as it should be. There's been this sharp dispute, this sharp debate, people have been getting kind of angry and worked up, They're, they're swapping theological arguments either way, and the church just isn't really sure. Maybe, maybe these guys are right, maybe... You know, circumcision is a big thing. Maybe, maybe that still applies. 
By the way, I don't know what the women are thinking. They're like, well, we're screwed. <laughs> like, are we, what are we? Anyway. So they say, why don't you guys go up to Jerusalem, go to the church there, and you guys can figure it out. So in Jerusalem, Jesus' brother, James, is sort of overseeing the church there, and he's going to call everyone together and have a council. It's called the Council of Jerusalem. And it's a great story with James, because James, when Jesus was doing his ministry, thought that his brother was crazy. All right? It's recorded in the Gospels. Jesus' brothers and his mum were kind of like, Jesus has been out in the wilderness a little too long. He thinks he's God now, right? And so, like any good brother, he thinks um, his, his brother's boots are too big for him, and he doubts, he doubts what Jesus is saying about himself. And now, he's leading the church in Jerusalem. That's what God's grace can do in someone's life. And so, so why don't you go up to James... You can hang out with the other apostles, the other leaders, and you can figure this thing out. Now, the question is, why, why is this such a big deal for Paul and Barnabas? Like, can't they all just get along? You know, Christians are always fighting with each other, have all these denominations, all these factions. Can't we all just kind of, can't we all just get along? Yeah, you believe that about salvation. I believe this about salvation. Can't we just make it work? The reason that Paul and Barnabas don't just want to make it work, the reason that they're not going to settle for this new teaching and just get on with their own ministry, the reason that they're so passionate about this is because they have seen what God has done by his grace. They've seen the power of the gospel apart from the works of people to save them. Remember we said last week, we quoted Paul in uh, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, I think it is, where he says, you know, my whole life is being poured into seeing people come to faith by grace and then on to maturity by grace. And so they've seen this. They've seen the power of the gospel despite people, in spite of people. They've seen God's mercy at work, and it's beautiful. Just remind me of this story. I think it's true. I haven't verified this, but apparently um, Napoleon Bonaparte, right, when he was leading uh, the French in his sort of conquest of the world, he, um, one of his soldiers, he had condemned one of his soldiers to death. And this guy had, had messed up a couple of times. And so his um, mum, the condemned soldier's mum, came to Napoleon and said, please have mercy. Please spare my son. And Napoleon was like, no, justice needs to prevail. He's done this thing twice now. He's going he's gonna to get it in the neck. And his mum just said, Napoleon, please have mercy mercy. Napoleon's response again was, to have mercy would not be just. Justice must prevail. To which she replied, yes, I'm asking for mercy. If he got what he deserved, then it wouldn't be mercy at all. Please have mercy. 
she acknowledges her son's guilt. She doesn't say, well, it wasn't a big deal, or no, he didn't really do it with someone else. No, she says, yes, he's guilty. That's why I'm asking for mercy. If he got what he deserved, it wouldn't be mercy. And Napoleon's response was to pardon the soldier. He understood what it meant to be gracious. And Paul and Barnabas have seen over and again God's grace in spite of the people's works. They've seen God's salvation come into the lives of these Gentiles who haven't been circumcised. So what these people are saying, in effect, is all of those people who you've seen become Christians, those thousands of Gentiles who call themselves Christians, that that was fake. That's not real. It doesn't apply. They're not circumcised. So this is a big deal. It's a big enough deal for them to stand up and to dispute and to debate, and it's a big enough deal for them to drop everything and go to Jerusalem to get this thing sorted out. Now, if you've been, like, if you've done any kind of gospel ministry, and by that I mean if you have ever shared the good news of the love of Jesus, his unconditional, undeserved, unmerited love with people, then you will likewise feel a little bit miffed when you come across people who deny that truth who want to make it about something else, who want to add something to the requirements to be saved. You might have come across, there are legit churches, and I was about to name them, but it's probably not worthwhile. There are are churches, you can find them online easy. You can look up their statement of belief, and they will say from the top, most important thing, we believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And then somewhere down the list, they will say, by the way, you to be a Christian, you've got to speak in tongues. Or by the way, to be a Christian, you've got to be baptized by someone who's ordained in our church, right? And, and, and just like according to official Catholic doctrine, this is their view of salvation as well. That you need to contribute something. I had a conversation with a guy from the J-Dubs the other day from Jehovah's Witnesses. And we were talking about this issue, because this is what I wanted to get to. They were saying, you know, we're, we're, we're Christians as well, we believe in the Bible as well, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, listen, this is what it comes down to. Do you believe that people are saved by grace? He's like, no, not really. He didn't say it in as many words, but it was absolutely clear. Part of the reason he knocked on my door is because he wasn't saved by grace. That was part of his contribution. So this is why these guys are so worked up about this issue. It is central, central to our understanding of God and of salvation and of eternal life. Verse 3, the church sent them on their way. And as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. See? They can't help themselves. This is their whole thing. Everywhere they go, they're telling people, you won't believe this. This is insane. God's grace is unconditional. You know how we thought it was really about the Jews? It's not. Everyone, even women and children and slaves, they're all part of it. And so everywhere they go, they're telling these stories and it's making everyone very glad. Why? Because the gospel of grace is good news. 
I hope you're feeling glad this morning. And they continue to talk about it. Verse 4 and 5, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. They're constantly testifying to what God's been doing. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. We're talking about this being the first near-death experience for the church, but it, I mean, it didn't end here. This question has, and, and this issue, this near-death experience has pervaded church history from then until now. Like, we just can't get this right. It's as if, you know, there's something in our human nature that just wants to earn it. And so right throughout, I mean, and this is like crazy, like after this time, for the next few generations, people believed that they had to contribute something. For 1,500 years up until the Reformation, the pervading belief among Christians was that I, I kind of earn my way to heaven if I get there in the end. I need to do these things. I need to say these prayers. I need to perform these rituals in order to be saved by God. It was in the first century. It was, came to a head in the Reformation, right, 1500s. Martin Luther's like, I'm not standing for this anymore, right? He's got the bit of the Paul about him, sharp dispute and debate. He himself was saved out of a works-based righteousness, an understanding of, of salvation based on works. And he and his buddies led one of the biggest revolutions that the world's ever seen, the Protestant Reformation. But we haven't just been on an upward trajectory since then, right? We've, we've had our ups and downs since then. Like I said, the, the official Catholic doctrine, even though Catholics themselves will vary widely on this question, official doctrine is, yeah, we, we, you know, salvation is dependent on works. And it's not just others. It's us too, right? It's us too. We have this tendency. It's in our human nature. We had a great conversation. I dropped in the other night on Tuesday night with the youth Bible study here at the church and there was just great conversation around what it means to live as a Christian. What does God require of us? How should we live? And this is a question that applies to this this same issue that we're looking at this morning. God requires something of me in the way that I live. God requires me to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And it's very easy for us to get this kind of mixed up in our mind and for that suddenly to become part of the deal, right? Part of me being saved is dependent on X, Y, and Z. So I want to kind of focus on this issue of living a godly life in Christ Jesus, what that means in relationship to our salvation. 
Here's what I want to say to you. I hope this comes really clear. What we believe about this comes down to our view of God himself. It's, it's nothing smaller than that. What do we believe about God? What is God like? Let me try and illustrate it for you. My younger sister is adopted. We adopted her from South Korea when she was five months old. She's now nearly 30, I think. And so in 1988, my parents went over to Seoul, and uh, this was after a years of process, right? But they went over there and they met Annalie for the first time. Her name was Song Air Ji then. They met her, um, they loved her, and they brought her home. And from that moment until now, she has been every bit part of my family as I am. Now, I want you to picture Annalie growing up in our household. She looks different, right? She, she looks like a Korean. Um, she knows that she's been adopted. She knows that she was born into a family that couldn't, couldn't provide for her for whatever reason. She ended up in an orphanage and then she's adopted. And as she grows up, my, now it's my dad, uh, my mum died soon after she was adopted. My dad, over the years, is explaining to her how we do life in our household. In the Smith family household, here's how we do life. Here's, here's how we relate to one another. Here's how we, um, you know, whatever. Here's how we do the chores. Here's how we uh, relate to other people. Here's what we believe about God. Like all of these things, all these expectations for her. Now, as someone who's been adopted into a family, she could, she could interpret, she could hear, she could think about those expectations in two very different ways. She could think, everyone look right at me, this is, this is my thing, right? She could think to herself, I need to live according to what my father has outlined for me because I am now part of this family. I belong to this family. Or she could think to herself, I better do these things that he's saying, otherwise they may not keep me. That's the difference between grace and works. So yes, God calls us to live a certain way. He, he commands us to live a certain way. He makes demands of us to live a certain way. But we do so because we live in his house now. We've been adopted. It's the most beautiful doctrine of Christianity. If you've never thought about it, read about it, please do. We have been adopted. We are God's children now, John says in his first letter. And so as God's children, the Bible makes absolutely clear, we are inheritors and heirs of everything that is Jesus. Everything that belongs to Jesus as God's own son belongs to us. And so we live like Jesus because we are sons and daughters like Jesus. That's profound. That's life-changing. 
Do you see how someone who might say, well, I've been saved now and that's my insurance policy when I die you know, against hell and so now I'm just going to do what I like because God's going to forgive me anyway. See how that doesn't even compute with the vision of Christian life outlined for us in the scriptures? Can you, can you imagine my sister thinking that, having been adopted into our family? That sense of entitlement just doesn't exist. So there's no sense of entitlement. There's also no sense in which we must earn our keep. By living that godly life, by living changed lives, by walking in the Spirit, by doing good works, we're not earning our keep. We're not saving our place in the house. We are simply living out of the identity that we now have as adopted children of God. Is this making sense? There's a great story of Dick Lucas, one of my favorite preachers. He preached mainly in the last century, but he preached one of these sermons, and he's way better preacher than me. He's in London, and he was just, just hammering it and just like, you know, it's perfect theology flowing from his mouth for about 45 minutes. And then the first person he met after church shook his hand, and he was like, thank you for the sermon, Reverend Lucas. It's like I always say, God helps them who helps themselves. All right, cheerio. It's like, oh, my God. This is why, going back to last week, we need to preach the gospel to each other every week because we're prone to wander. So, the vision we need to have in our minds is that we are now, as adopted children of God, living in God's household. We live according to that, the, 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 the environment of the household because we've been adopted, not in order to keep our place. Paul makes this so explicitly and beautifully clear in Ephesians chapter 2. Get this, verse 8 to 10, he, he, he keeps this tension in just the kind of way that we should. He says, for it is by what? Grace. Grace is an unmerited gift. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, not by circumcision, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Saved by grace, apart from works, saved into good works. If you like big words, this is how I would describe it. The works that we do, the life that we live, that we're called to live, the commandments of God, our obedience of them are not instrumental, they're evidential, right? They're not instrumental. They don't get us saved. They are evidential. They prove that we've been saved. Yeah, that is good. Peter himself, who is the subject of most of the first half of the book, if you remember, he's seen this happen. He's seen God do this amazing thing. He's been convinced himself from a place of, I'm not sure if this is really God's plan for free salvation for all people of all places. He gets convinced pretty emphatically by a vision. And then by the works of God in bringing people to faith. And now it's his turn to stand up. I can't believe he's gone so long without saying anything. All right, this is Peter. 
But check it out, verse 6 through 11. I'll read the whole thing. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God knows the heart. Remember that. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. Evidence. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. Hear this. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Not only does the, do these rules, these commandments, these signs apply to the Gentiles, not even to the Jews, he's saying, all of us are saved by grace. And this has always been God's plan. This accords with the Bible. This accords with the prophets. God's been doing this from the beginning. The big story of salvation is God pursuing all people by grace. So, case closed. Peter has spoken. Done and dusted. Until you get to verse 19, James goes and makes it all a little bit more confusing. Verse 19 to 21, James stands up and says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Good. Instead... We should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. From the law, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Kind of throwing a spanner in my sermon there, James. It's been a little bit confusing to people over the years, myself included, as to why they make this pronouncement. Why don't they just go with the, everybody just get on with grace? And I think it makes, particularly doesn't make sense to us in modern 21st century Australia because we are very used, right? This is, all of us have been formed like this. We've been formed to, to, to partner freedom with rights. So if we're free, with our freedom come certain rights. In modern society, the view is pretty much pervasive that all people are free, all people are created equal, and therefore we have such a thing as human rights, right? Those things go together. It's very interesting that up until the birth of Christianity, there was no such thing. 
It's a very interesting article. I think it's in the New Statesman by a guy named Tom Holland, who's not a Christian, but he's a historian, and uh, he's just changed his mind recently about the, the impact of Christianity on the world. He has come to see, along with many other historians, that we owe our very idea of human rights and equality to Christianity itself, and without Christianity, there would be no such idea. So we're used to this. We're used to thinking, if I'm free, right, and that's what we're saying here, the gospel gives us freedom. It frees us from the yoke, as Peter put it, the yoke of the law, the yoke of rituals and rites and, 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 and um, qualifications for salvation. So we're free, and therefore we should have some rights. And so what James says here kind of grates against us. What about our rights? You've just said we're free. We've got the right to eat meat with blood in it. We've got the right to eat meat that's been strangled, right? What's going on here? I think what's going on here is that for James and really for the New Testament as you read it through, grace, being saved by grace, leads to being gracious. And what James has in mind here are the relationships that Christians had with their Jewish brothers and sisters or with Jews who had not yet become Christians. He has in mind those vital relationships. And if I'm in the first century, and to some extent in our society today and to a further extent in some of the cultures you guys are coming from, table fellowship is so important. Most of these gospel conversations that were happening between Christians and non-Christians were happening over a meal. Praise God for that, right? We should bring that back. And so James sees this and he says, right, for the sake of those relationships, for the sake of gospel proclamation, for the sake of our Jewish Brothers and sisters, let's, let's just be gracious. Let's adopt some of, their, some of their policies and procedures around food for the sake of the relationship. Otherwise, you sit down as a Christian with your bloody steak that's been strangled to death, right? And suddenly all of the Jews leave the table. See, it's for the sake of those, what Paul will call weaker brothers and sisters, that they forego the rights that they have as Christians. And so he lists there some of the food laws from the Old Testament and says, you guys should, should go with these as well. He also mentions sexual immorality, which is, uh, which is not something that Christians are excused from. Um, the different ideas about why that's there. Some say it's because in the Old Testament text, the food laws go with a lot of laws around sexual immorality. Others believe it has more to do with um, marriage customs. It's not clear, um, but it doesn't change the purpose that he has here. He says, Christians, forgo your freedom for the sake of fellowship. I think a lot of us could do with the reminder about this. I remember when, after I became a Christian, I was 19. Uh, I used to brew beer pretty much every day. And just, I, just lo- I just loved beer, all right? And I grew up in a teetotaling family. That was part of my kind of, right, I'm, I'm saved now. I'm free from the law that's been imposed on me all these years. 
your teetotaling laws. I'm free from that, and so I just dove in. And I remember having a a conversation with my nan, who at this point was uh, just about 100 years old. And she was was saying, she was just like, "Why why why do you drink? Do you have to drink? I was like, let me put this beer down for a second. All right. <laughs> Let's just look at the Bible. And I, and, I, and I just thrashed her in the debate, right? I had verses and theology, and I had all these reasons why, as Christians, we are free to drink the alcohol that God has made for us, all right? And to do so with thanksgiving and praise. What would James have said to me? He would probably have said, Just don't drink. It's no big deal. You are free to drink. But just don't do it for the sake of your grandma. It's hurting her faith. It's it's causing her stress. She wants to leave the table when you... Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians. They're all up in arms about eating food offered to idols. He's like, yeah, there are no idols. There are no false gods. It's fine. You can eat the meat. But maybe just don't do it. For the sake of the weaker brothers and sisters. No big deal. Forgo your freedom for the sake of fellowship. Right? It's the Christian thing to do. It's what Jesus would have done. Paul says it beautifully in Galatians chapter 5. This is it, right? This is what I'm going to finish on this. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Just think about that for a second. Oh, how many of us can just... It's the first time our shoulders have dropped in years. Free. All of those laws that I've accumulated for myself, that I believe are what make me acceptable to God, my observation of them, my obedience to them, that's why God loves me. How many of us think like that? Maybe that's why God loves me now, or maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe he loves a future version of me that gets up early in the morning and reads my Bible and always remembers to say grace before meals. That version of you dies now. Brothers and sisters, you are called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. That causes the 19-year-old to stop drinking in front of his grandma. And it caused the early Christians to stop eating rare steaks. It just did. It wasn't about earning God's favour. It was about loving the people around them. So what does this mean for us? We say over and over and over again, we, like the very reason we exist, our mission is to be a community, a family of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. And some people hear that and they're like, whoa, that's a pretty heavy burden, right? And it is in some ways. It's called being a disciple of Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I think it's Luke 14, he said, Look, if you can't do this, if you can't count the cost, then don't do it. If you can't deny yourself and take up your cross, then don't be my disciple. So it is a big thing. It's a weighty vision. But in no sense are we saying that you need to make all of life all about Jesus, otherwise God won't love you. Otherwise you won't be saved. No, we are saved 
by grace alone, on the merits of Christ's death alone. That's why he said on the cross, it is finished. Everything that needs to be done to bring you to faith in Jesus and to have you adopted into his family has been done. And now, from a place inside the house, from a place of adoption, we make all of life all about Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we do want to be that church. And we do want to be the kind of church that helps one another to do this. So please fill us so much with a sense of gratitude for our adoption as your sons and daughters that we'd want others to be adopted into your family as well. And having been adopted, I pray that you would encourage us to to live lives that reflect the lifestyle of the household. Father, please forgive us when we've used our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Please forgive us when we've placed stumbling blocks in front of other believers. Please help us to delight in the freedom that you've given us. Now a Christian, Lord of all, subject to none. Now a Christian, subject to all, servant of all. We thank you for this truth in Jesus' name. Amen.